Part 2, Chapter 9, Section 100b of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, History of the Public Life of Jesus. Chapter 9, Miracles of Jesus. Section 100b, Resuscitations of the Dead. The alleged conduct of the disciples also, verse 12 and following, is such as to excite surprise. If Jesus had represented to them, or at least to the three principal among them, the death of the daughter of Jairus as a mere sleep, how could they, when he said of Lazarus, He sleeps, I will awake him, think that he referred to a natural sleep? One would not awake a patient out of a healthy sleep, hence it must have immediately occurred to the disciples that here sleep was spoken of in the same sense as in the case of the maiden, that instead of this the disciples understand the deep expressions of Jesus quite superficially, is entirely in the fourth evangelist's favorite manner, which we have learned to recognize by many examples. If tradition had in any way made known to him that to speak of death as a sleep was part of the customary phraseology of Jesus, there would immediately spring up in his imagination, so fertile in this kind of antithesis, a misunderstanding corresponding to that figure of speech. The observation of the Jews, verse 37, is scarcely conceivable presupposing the truth of the synoptical resuscitations of the dead. The Jews appeal to the cure of the man born blind, John chapter 9, and draw the inference that he who had restored sight to this individual must surely have been able to avert the death of Lazarus. How came they to refer to this heterogeneous and inadequate example, if there lay before them, in the two resuscitations of the dead, miracles more analogous and adapted to give hope even in this case of actual death it is certain that the galilean resuscitations were prior to this of lazarus since jesus after this period went no more into galilee neither could those events remain unknown in the capital especially as we are expressly told that the fame of them went abroad into all that land, throughout all Judea, and throughout all the country round about. To the real Jews, therefore, these cases must have been well known, and, as the fourth evangelist makes his Jews refer to something less to the point, it is probable that he knew nothing of the above events, for that the reference belongs to him and not to the Jews themselves, is evident from the fact that he makes them refer to the very cure which he had last narrated. A formidable difficulty lies also in the prayer which is put into the mouth of Jesus, verse 41 and following. After thanking the Father for hearing his prayers, he adds that for himself he knew well that the Father heard him always and that he uttered this special thanksgiving only for the sake of the people around him, in order to obtain their belief in his divine mission. Thus he first gives his address a relation to God, 
and afterwards reduces this relation to a feigned one intended to exist only in the conceptions of the people nor is the sense of the words such as luca represents it namely that jesus for his own part would have prayed in silence but for the benefit of the people uttered his prayer aloud for in the certainty of fulfilment there lies no motive for silent prayer they imply that for himself he had no need to thank the father for a single result as if surprised since he was sure beforehand of having his wish granted so that the wish and the thanks were coincident that is to speak generally his relation to the father did not consist in single acts of prayer fulfilment and thanks but in a continual and permanent interchange of these reciprocal functions in which no single act of gratitude in and by itself could be distinguished in this manner if it may be admitted that in relation to the necessities of the people and out of sympathy with them such an isolated act could have taken place on the part of jesus yet if there be any truth in this explanation jesus must have been entirely borne away by sympathy must have made the position of the people his own and thus in that moment have prayed from his own impulse and on his own behalf but here scarcely has he begun to pray when the reflection arises that he does this from no need of his own he prays therefore from no lively feeling but out of cold accommodation and this must be felt difficult to conceive nay even revolting he who in this manner prays solely for the edification of others ought in no case to tell them that he prays from their point of view not from his own since an audible prayer cannot make any impression on the hearers unless they suppose the speaker's whole soul to be engaged how then could jesus make his prayer ineffective by this addition if he felt impelled to lay before god a confession of the true state of the case he might have done this in silence that he uttered the confession aloud and that we in consequence read it could only happen on a calculation of advantage to later christendom to the readers of the gospel while this thanksgiving was for obvious reasons needful to awake the faith of the spectators the more developed faith which the fourth gospel presupposes might regard it as a difficulty because it might possibly appear to proceed from too subordinate and more particularly a too little constant relation between the father and the son consequently the prayer which was necessary for the hearers must be annulled for readers of a later period or its value restricted to that of a mere accommodation but this consideration cannot have been present in the mind of jesus it could only belong to a christian who lived later this has been already felt by one critic who has hence proposed to throw verse forty two out of the text as an unauthenticated addition by a later hand but as this judgment is destitute of any external reason 
if the above passage could not have been uttered by jesus we must conclude that the evangelist only lent the words to jesus in order to explain the preceding verse forty one and to this opinion luca has shown himself not altogether disinclined assuredly we have here words which are only lent to jesus by the evangelist but if it be so with these words what is our security that it is so only with these in a gospel in which we have already detected many discourses to be merely lent to the alleged speakers in a narrative which presents historical improbabilities at all points the difficulty contained in a single verse is not a sign that that verse does not belong to the rest but that the whole taken together does not belong to the class of historical compositions as regards the gradation in the external testimony to the three narratives it has already been justly observed by woolston that only the resurrection of the daughter of jairus in which the miraculous is the least marked appears in three evangelists the two others are each related by one evangelist only and as it is far less easy to understand the omission in the other gospels in relation to the resurrection of lazarus than in relation to the raising of the youth at nain there is here again a complete climax that the last named event is mentioned by the author of luke's gospel alone especially that matthew and mark have it not instead of the resuscitation of the daughter of jairus or together with that narrative is a difficulty in more than one respect even viewed generally as a resuscitation of a dead person one would have thought as there were few of such miracles according to our gospels and as they are highly calculated to carry conviction it could not have been too much trouble to the evangelists to recount it as a second instance especially as matthew has thought it worth while for example to narrate three cures of blindness which nevertheless were of far less importance and of which therefore he might have spared two inserting instead of them either one or the other of the remaining resuscitations of the dead but admitting that the two first evangelists had some reason no longer to be discovered for not giving more than one history of a resurrection they ought one must think to have chosen that of the youth at nain far rather than that of the daughter of jairus because the former as we have above observed was a more indubitable and striking resurrection as nevertheless they give only the latter matthew at least can have known nothing of the others mark it is true probably had it before him in luke but he had as early as chapter three verse seven or verse twenty leaped from luke chapter six verse twelve or seventeen to matthew chapter twelve verse fifteen and only at chapter four verse thirty five or twenty one and following returns to luke chapter eight verse twenty two or sixteen and following thus passing over the resurrection of the youth luke chapter seven verse eleven and following but now arises the second question how can the resurrection of the youth if it really happened 
have remained unknown to the author of the first gospel even apart from the supposition that this gospel had an apostolic origin this question is fraught with no less difficulty than the former besides the people there were present many of his disciples the place nain according to the account which josephus gives of its position relative to mount tabor cannot have been far from the ordinary galilean theatre of the ministry of jesus lastly the fame of the event as was natural was widely disseminated verse seventeen schleiermacher is of opinion that the authors of the first sketches from the life of jesus not being within the apostolic circle did not generally venture to apply to the much-occupied apostles but rather sought the friends of jesus of the second order and in doing so they naturally turned to those places where they might hope for the richest harvests to capernaum and jerusalem events which like the resuscitation in question occurred in other places could not so easily become common property but first this conception of the case is too subjective making the promulgation of the most important deeds of jesus dependent on the researches of amateurs and collectors of anecdotes who went about gleaning like papius at a later period secondly and these two objections are essentially connected there lies at its foundation the erroneous idea that such histories were fixed like inert bodies once fallen to the ground in the places to which they belonged guarded there as lifeless treasures and only exhibited to those who took the trouble to resort to the spot instead of which they were rather like the light-winged inhabitants of the air flying far away from the place which gave them birth roaming everywhere and not seldom losing all association with their original locality we see the same thing happen daily innumerable histories both true and false are represented as having occurred at the most widely different places such a narrative once formed is itself the substance the alleged locality the accident by no means can the locality be the substance to which the narrative is united as the accident as it would follow from schleiermacher's supposition since then it cannot well be conceived that an incident of this kind if it really happened could remain foreign to the general tradition and hence unknown to the author of the first gospel the fact of this author's ignorance of the incident gives rise to a suspicion that it did not really happen but this ground of doubt falls with incomparably greater weight on the narrative of the resurrection of lazarus in the fourth gospel if the authors or collectors of the three first gospels knew of this they could not for more than one reason avoid introducing it into their writings for first of all the resuscitations effected by jesus nay of all his miracles this resurrection of lazarus if not the most wonderful is yet the one in which the marvellous presents itself the most obviously and strikingly and which therefore if its historical reality can be established 
is a pre-eminently strong proof of the extraordinary endowments of jesus as a divine messenger whence the evangelists although they had related one or two other instances of the kind could not think it superfluous to add this also but secondly the resurrection of lazarus had according to the representation of john a direct influence in the development of the fate of jesus for we learn from chapter eleven verse forty seven and following that the increased resort to jesus and the credit which this event procured him led to that consultation of the sanhedrim in which the sanguinary counsel of caiaphas was given and approved thus the event had a double importance pragmatical as well as dogmatical consequently the synoptical writers could not have failed to narrate it had it been within their knowledge nevertheless theologians have found out all sorts of reasons why those evangelists even had the fact been known to them should refrain from its narration some have been of opinion that at the time of the composition of the three first gospels the history was still in every mouth so that to make a written record of it was superfluous others on the contrary have conjectured that it was thought desirable to guard against its further publication lest danger should accrue to lazarus and his family the former of whom according to john chapter twelve verse ten was persecuted by the jewish hierarchy on account of the miracle which had been performed in him a caution for which there was no necessity at the later period at which john wrote his gospel it is plain that these two reasons nullify each other and neither of them is in itself worthy of a serious refutation yet as similar modes of evading a difficulty are still more frequently resorted to than might be supposed we ought not to think some animadversion on them altogether thrown away the proposition that the resurrection of lazarus was not recorded by the synoptists because it was generally known in their circle proves too much since on this rule precisely the most important events in the life of jesus his baptism death and resurrection must have remained unwritten moreover writings which like our gospels originate in a religious community do not serve merely to make known the unknown it is their office also to preserve what is already known in opposition to the other explanation it has been remarked by others that the publication of this history among those who were not natives of palestine as was the case with those for whom mark and luke wrote could have done no injury to lazarus and even the author of the first gospel admitting that he wrote in and for palestine could hardly have withheld a fact in which the glory of christ was so peculiarly manifested merely out of consideration to lazarus who supposing the more improbable case that he was yet living at the time of the composition of the first gospel ought not christian as he doubtless was to refuse to suffer for the name of christ and the same observation would apply to his family the most dangerous time for lazarus 
according to John chapter 12, verse 10, was that immediately after his resurrection, and a narrative which appeared so long after could scarcely have heightened or renewed this danger. Besides, in the neighborhood of Bethany and Jerusalem, whence danger was threatened to Lazarus, the event must have been so well known and remembered that nothing was to be risked by its publication. It appears, then, that the resurrection of Lazarus, since it is not narrated by the synoptists, cannot have been known to them, and the question arises, how was this ignorance possible? Haza gives the mysterious answer that the reason of this omission lies hid in the common relations under which the synoptists in general were silent concerning all the earlier incidents in Judea. But this leaves it uncertain, at least so far as the expressions go, whether we ought to decide to the disadvantage of the fourth gospel or of its predecessors. The latest criticism of the gospel of Matthew has cleared up the ambiguity in Haza's answer after its usual manner, determining the nature of those common relations which he vaguely adduces thus. Every one of the synoptists, by his ignorance of a history which an apostle must have known, betrays himself to be no apostle. But this renunciation of the apostolic origin of the first gospel does not by any means enable us to explain the ignorance of its author and his compeers of the resurrection of Lazarus. For besides the remarkable character of the event, its occurrence in the very heart of Judea, the great attention excited by it, and its having been witnessed by the apostles, all these considerations render it incomprehensible that it should not have entered into the general tradition, and from thence into the synoptical gospels. It is argued that these gospels are founded on Galilean legends, that is, oral narratives and written notices by the Galilean friends and companions of Jesus, that these were not present at the resurrection of Lazarus, and therefore did not include it in their memoirs, and that the authors of the first gospels, strictly confining themselves to the Galilean sources of information, likewise passed over the event. But there was not such a wall of partition between Galilee and Judea that the fame of an event like the resurrection of Lazarus could help sounding over from the one to the other. Even if it did not happen during a feast time, when, John chapter 4 verse 45, many Galileans might be eyewitnesses, yet the disciples, who were for the greater part Galileans, were present, verse 16, and must, so soon as they returned into Galilee after the resurrection of Jesus, have spread abroad the history throughout this province, or rather, before this, the Galileans who kept the last Passover attended by Jesus must have learned the event, the report of which was so rife in the city. Hence, even Luca finds this explanation of gobblers unsatisfactory, and on his own side attempts to solve the enigma by the observation that the original evangelical tradition, which the synoptists followed, did not represent the history of the Passion 
mainly in a pragmatical light, and therefore gave no heed to this event as the secret motive of the murderous resolve against Jesus, and that only John, who was initiated into the secret history of the Sanhedrim, was in a condition to supply this explanatory fact. This view of the case would certainly appear to neutralize one reason why the synoptists must have noticed the event in question, namely, that drawn from its pragmatical importance. But when it is added that as a miracle regarded in itself, apart from its more particular circumstances, it might easily be lost among the rest of those narratives from which we have in the three first Gospels a partly accidental selection, we must reply that the synoptical selection of miracles appears to be an accidental one only when that is at once assumed which ought first to be proved, namely, that the miracles in the fourth Gospel are historical, and, unless the selection be casual to a degree inconsistent with the slightest intelligence in the compilers, such a miracle cannot have been overlooked. It has doubtless been these and similar considerations which have led the latest writers on the controversy concerning the first gospel to complain of the one-sidedness with which the above question is always answered to the disadvantage of the synoptists, especially Matthew, as if it were forgotten that an answer dangerous to the fourth gospel lies just as near at hand. For our own part, we are not so greatly alarmed by the fulminations of Luca as to be deterred from the expression of our opinion on the subject. This theologian, even in his latest editions, reproaches those who, from the silence of the synoptical writers, conclude that this narrative is a fiction, and the Gospel of John not authentic, with an unparalleled lack of discernment, and a total want of insight into the mutual relations of our Gospels, that is, into those relations viewed according to the professional conviction of theologians, which is unshaken even by the often well-directed attacks of the author of the Probabilia. We, nevertheless, distinctly declare that we regard the history of the resurrection of Lazarus not only as in the highest degree improbable in itself, but also destitute of external evidence, and this whole chapter, in connection with those previously examined, as an indication of the unauthenticity of the fourth gospel. If it is thus proved that all the three evangelical histories of resuscitations are rendered more or less doubtful by negative reasons, all that is now wanting to us is positive proof that the tradition of Jesus having raised the dead might easily be formed without historical foundation. According to rabbinical, as well as New Testament passages, for example, John chapter 5, verse 28 and following, chapter 6, verse 40 and 44, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, the resuscitation of the dead was expected of the Messiah at his coming. Now the parousia, the appearance of the Messiah on earth, 
was in the view of the early church broken by his death into two parts the first comprised his preparatory appearance which began with his human birth and ended with the resurrection and ascension the second was to commence with his future advent on the clouds of heaven in order to open the age to come as the first appearance of jesus had wanted the glory and majesty expected in the messiah the great demonstrations of messianic power and in particular the general resurrection of the dead were assigned to his second and as yet future appearance on earth nevertheless as an immediate pledge of what was to be anticipated even in the first advent some four splendors of the second must have been visible in single instances jesus must even in his first advent by awaking some of the dead have guaranteed his authority one day to awake all the dead he must when questioned as to his messiahship have been able to adduce among other criteria the fact that the dead were raised up by him matthew chapter eleven verse five and he must have imparted the same power to his disciples matthew chapter eleven verse eight compare acts chapter nine verse forty chapter twenty verse ten but especially as a close prefiguration of the hour in which all that are in their graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth john chapter five verse twenty eight and following he must have cried with a loud voice come forth to one who had lain in the grave four days john chapter eleven verses seventeen and forty three for the origination of detailed narratives of single resuscitations there lay besides the most appropriate types in the old testament the prophets elijah and elisha first kings chapter seventeen verse seventeen and following second kings chapter four verse eighteen and following had awaked the dead and to these instances jewish writings appealed as a type of the messianic time the object of the resuscitation was with both these prophets a child but a boy while in the narrative common to the synoptists we have a girl the two prophets revived him while he lay on the bed as jesus does the daughter of jairus both entered alone into the chamber of death as jesus excludes all save a few confidential friends only as it is fitting the messiah needs not the laborious manipulations by which the prophets attained their object elijah in particular raised the son of a widow as jesus did at nain he met the widow of zarephat at the gate but before the death of her son as jesus met the widow of nain under the gate of the city after the death of her son lastly it is in both instances told in the same words how the miracle worker restored the son to the mother even one already laid in his grave like lazarus was restored to life by the prophet elisha with this difference however that the prophet himself had been long dead and the contact of his bones reanimated a corpse which was accidentally thrown upon them 
second kings chapter thirteen verse twenty one there is yet another point of similarity between the resuscitations of the dead in the old testament and that of lazarus it is that jesus while in his former resuscitation he utters the authoritative word without any preliminary in that of lazarus offers a prayer to god as elisha and more particularly elijah are said to have done while paulus extends to these narratives in the old testament the natural explanation which he has applied to those in the new theologians of more enlarged views have long ago remarked that the resurrections in the new testament are nothing more than mythi which had their origin in the tendency of the early christian church to make her messiah agree with the type of the prophets and with the messianic ideal end of section one hundred